0: Right, take your bibles turn to first peter first peter chapter 1 in our expositional study of first peter chapter 1 we have come to consider how we are to respond in regard to the way we live our lives to the so great a salvation that we have experienced by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We looked at verse 13, a last Lord's Day morning, which dealt how with how we are to respond with our minds to that great salvation. And verse 13 reads this way, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then verse 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we delight in our relationship with You. We are grateful to know that we are your children, made so by the precious blood of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We rejoice in the fact that we have, you have taken up residence within us by your Holy Spirit. You've given us your Spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth. And so we ask, Father, this morning that you would work in our midst that you would do that among us, that you would take your sword in hand and do your work in our hearts and minds. We also pray, pray, Lord, for anyone in our midst who doesn't know you in truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would glorify yourself by bringing salvation. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your steadfast and faithful love toward us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Where there is hope, there is holiness. I want you to let that grip you this morning and to think upon that with me. Where there is hope, there is holiness. Everybody that has the hope talked about in verse 13 will pursue the holiness talked about in verses 14 through 16. There's a connection between hope and holiness. You see this also in the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, or chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children. Now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So there's this connection between hope and holiness. We find that connection in our text it is as children of God that we hear this command come to us to be holy. To be holy as our Father is holy. To be holy as our Savior is holy. So, as I understand, as we understand that we are children of God, we fix our hope, we fix our, our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everyone who has this hope is a person who will be in pursuit of holiness. Holiness always follows after this hope, and as we saw in verse thirteen, uh, we have this this command to be people who thus set our hope on this one thing. This is a command, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we we talked about what hope is, and what hope is is the believer's attitude toward the future in light of God's promises. It's living your life in anticipation, in assurance, that what God has told you your future will be, it will indeed be. God says, this is what your future will be. Christ is coming again. And you say, okay, I'm going to live in light of that today. I'm going to live in light of my future today. To put it another way, as we've already seen in 1 Peter chapter 1, we are living as exiles, as pilgrims, as strangers on this earth. In other words, we are just passing through. We're holding loosely to the things of this world and to the things of this life. And we have set our hearts on glory. We have set our hearts on heaven. That's what it means to live in hope. We are commanded, as I said, to live lives like that. We are commanded to live with a pilgrim mindset. Verse 13 is dealing with the mind. We are to live with a pilgrim.
1: in glory with Christ
0: Jesus, with the hope of His return. But having told us what our response is to be to our salvation with our minds, we are to hope, verses 14 through 16 tell us what our response to our salvation is to be with regard to our living, with regard to our lives. The believer's response to salvation is not just a mental one. It is one of action. It is one of decision. It is one of choice. It's one of conduct. And that is what I want us to focus upon this morning. I want us to look at verses 14 through 16 under three headings. First of all, the relationship between the mind and the life. And then the relationship between the new birth and our new lives, our our new living. And then the relationship between our salvation and our holiness, our hope and our holiness. So first of all, the relationship between the mind and the life. Verses 14 through 16, deal with the life. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I've already said some things about this connection between the mind and the life, but I want to take it a little bit further this morning. The connection between how you think and how you live. And the reason why I believe this is important is because I think one of the great errors that we must overcome in the Christian life, in the church, is the error of thinking that knowing about something is equal to living it. Knowing about something is equal with living it. That because you've heard about it, that because you've been taught it, or maybe you have even taught it, Because you can talk about it means that you are living it. We have to be very careful to keep before our mind the truth that just because you know about something doesn't mean that you're experiencing it. It's one thing to know the gospel. It's another thing to live out of the gospel. It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know God and to serve God and to walk with God. It's one thing to talk about heaven. It's one thing to talk about glory. It's one thing to talk about our hope as believers. It's another thing to set your life on it and to live your life in light of it. Today, we have many who think that knowing something, having some knowledge of something, is equivalent to living it. This was one of the things that uh, concerned the Puritans after the Reformation. The Reformation was a great... A great period in the church's history. A a revival, a coming back to the Word of God. A coming back to the knowledge of the Word of God. And and basing one's life and practice upon the Word of God. It being the sole authority for one's life and practice. A lot of great truth came as a result of the Reformation. A lot of great truth was, was, was dispensed as a result of that. But what concerned the Puritans was this is that sometimes sometime after the Reformation things became awfully heady. Things became awfully intellectual, awfully academic. And it sort of seemed like the church fell into a dead orthodoxy. And the Puritans believed in being able to experience one's theology, being able to experience one's uh, salvation, being able to experience what the Bible taught and, what, uh, and being able to experience your salvation, in other words, it dealt with the affections, it dealt with the heart, it dealt with the mind, it dealt with it, 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 it caused one 's heart to well up with joy when they thought about the truth of the Word of God rather than being dead in academia or an academic pursuit and what 's important to remember is that you never find the mind separated from the life in the New Testament teaching about the Christian life. The only time you ever find the mind separated from the life in the New Testament is in regard to error. Always in regard to error. When when we see uh, the mind separated from the life, it represents a grave and serious error in the New Testament. So your mind is never to be separated from your life. Let me give you an example of this. Turn to James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. Or, yeah, verse 19. Well, let's go back to verse 14. And going down, I think I wrote something down wrong there. This says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith? Yeah, you might have to get your Bible out. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works not by faith alone and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way You see the blessing uh, the the blessing there is is not just for the one who has faith The blessing there is for the one that has that Accompanies has accompanying that faith action. If faith is just talk, it's not and it's not action, it's not true faith. It is a dead faith, it's not a saving faith. There's no way to demonstrate faith apart from deeds. Abraham demonstrated his faith when he was willing to take his son Isaac and offer him up on the altar. Rahab demonstrated her faith by protecting the messengers that had come to her. When you have faith that doesn't work according to James 2, it's not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. It's not a healthy thing. Again, go go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 beginning at verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I want you to notice that. The blessing is not on the one who just hears, who just hears truth, but it's on the one who does truth. It's on the one who hears and does. The person who listens and lives is the one upon whom the blessing is. So if you are just a hearer and not a doer, If the mind is separated, in other words, if the mind is separated from the life, according to James chapter 1, that's not a good thing. That's not a positive thing. That's the way to self-deception. Another example, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and while you're making your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, let me just give you some background about what's been going on in the church at Corinth. Believers in Corinth, the Corinthian church, they were wounding one another. They were wounding one another by exercising liberty without taking into consideration the consciousness of their fellow believers. Without regard at all to uh, the sensitive consciences of others, they were partaking of food that that had been sacrificed to idols. And they were justifying it by saying an idol is nothing. In other words, they say, we have knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing. Why should I be concerned about the sensitive conscience of my brother or sister in Christ? We have knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing. So begin reading with me. Paul says in chapter 8 and verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be... What's the Apostle Paul telling us there? As we read that text. Paul says, the evidence of salvation... Now get this, the evidence of salvation is not knowledge. The evidence of salvation is love. Knowledge is exercised in love. God's not telling us there not to know truth. God's not telling us there not to grow in our knowledge of the truth. He's he's warning us about something though. He's, He's warning us about a knowledge that makes someone proud about a knowledge that puffs someone up. In other words, a knowledge that is apart from humility. You see, where there's the right kind of knowledge and where there's the right kind of learning going on, it will always be demonstrated with humility and with love. Those things will accompany it. Humility and love. So it's not just knowledge. It's not just the mind, but the life. Humility and love. Let me just speak to a danger I see in, in, in some in the church today. I am afraid that we have some who are more in love with theology, more in love with Reformed theology, which is the circles that I read in and I and am around, more in love with theology than with God Himself. Some who are more in love with theological discussion and theological debate than God Himself. And I want us to always remember as we study the Word of God together that there is a difference between loving theology and loving God. Now those things should never be separated. They always go together. If someone says they love God, but they don't want to know their God, then there's a problem there. There's something wrong. But But if someone wants to study theology, and if someone wants to study the Bible, and they love discussions about theology and debates about theology and discussions about the Bible, let me tell you something. It doesn't necessarily mean they love God. Because it's not followed through with humility and love and action. And therefore, it's simply an empty, vain pursuit. It's just the mind separated from the life, and that's not God's design. Hearing without doing, that's not good. Faith without works, that's not good. Knowledge without love, that's not good. You put all of these these verses together, all of these texts together,
1: and what you find is that where there is the...
0: But the life is exercising humility and love and submission and action. Those are the marks of someone who has saving faith. When someone thinks they know something, but they don't strive to live what they think they know, they really don't know anything yet. So you see an emphasis on the mind in verse 13, and in verses 14 through 16, you see an emphasis on conduct, on the life, the relationship between the mind and the life. And these two, again, ought never be separated. Don't just think because you know. children, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's a difference in our thinking now because we have the mind of Christ. There's a difference in our thinking now because we have been saved. And because there's a difference in our thinking because we have been saved, then... We have an entirely new life as well, and all of this is because of salvation. There's a difference in our thinking, which results in an uh, uh, because of salvation results in an entirely new life. And I get this because verse fourteen begins with this: "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance." The word "obedient" there is a genitive noun, meaning that it's a noun that modifies another noun. So, what are we being told here? What kind of children are these? They're obedient children. The idea is simply not that they they happen to be obedient children. That's not the idea at all. These are children who are characterized by obedience. To say it another way, a Christian is an obedient child. You ask someone, what is a Christian? You can say, well, a Christian is an obedient child. Obedience is what characterizes the child of God. Another way to get a hold of this is by asking ourselves, what does the the Bible, how does the Bible describe lost men and women? Those who are apart from Christ. Those who are not gods in Christ Jesus. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air... That spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They are disobedient children. What characterizes characterizes Satan's children? What characterizes those who are still in Adam? Apart from Christ, they are disobedient children. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6 says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who are in Adam are sons of disobedience. Those who are children of Satan are sons of disobedience. Those who are children of God, those who are sons and daughters of God, are sons and daughters of obedience. That's their constitution. That is their nature by virtue of the new birth. By virtue of the new birth, we have been constituted to be obedient. It's in our nature to obey God. Obedient is what God's children are. Perfectly? Of course not. But as a pattern, because of that's our nature? That's our constitution? Absolutely. God's children are obedient by nature and the reason why they are is because God has made them His children. Think about that. God's children obey as a result of the new birth, as a result of a new nature, a new life a new relationship to God. Obedience is the goal and the desire of God's children. Because we are alive, because we are new men and women, it is the the desire of our heart to obey the Father. As a child seeks to please his parents, so our desire is to please our Heavenly Father. Look, I know something about you this morning if you're saved. And that is this. You want to obey God. You want to obey God. If you're truly saved, obedience is is not a duty for you. It's, It's not something that you do begrudgingly. Obedience, you give that because your heart wants to give it. Does it require effort to obey? Does it... Yes, does it require discipline to obey? Yes. But it requires faith. And it is that faith that God has given you that ensures that in the end, you will obey as a pattern of life. Because you believe, because you love Him who first loved you, you will obey. That will be your desire. We all run into those people all the time. We run into them at work or places that we frequent, strike up conversation with them and they will tell you that they are a Christian. That they know God or whatever else. But their lives are no different than anybody else in the world. Their speech is no different. The places they want to go and desire to go and be are no different the, the 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 entertainment they enjoy is no different than anyone else they watch things and listen to things that that believers should not desire to listen to and to watch but yet they say they're Christians where's the desire to obey God where is the desire to to heed his word where's the desire to be in his word where's the desire to be with his people i mean some of these people who tell you that they're a christian they haven't darkened the doors of a church in years i remember early on as a pastor it doesn't happen so much here but early on as a pastor i spent a lot of my time doing funerals i think i did three funerals in the first six months of being at my first church but i would get these calls from people wanting me to do funerals from their rel- for their relatives. People I had never seen before, never ran into, never had a conversation with. And I would ask some questions about their life and they would say, well, you know, they, uh, they made a profession of faith at the age of such, such and such and, and they belonged to your church. And I'm like, when was the last time they were here? In 1974. You know, that not been in church, not been walking with the Lord. For years and years and years. No desire for the things of God. No desire to obey Him. And to submit to His will for their lives. A relationship with God in Christ Jesus results in obedience. The new birth automatically produces that in the life of the child of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize, Look, you know, I... I don't desire to commune with God. I don't desire to obey God. I, my, my, my pursuit in life is self-satisfaction and, and you know doing the things that I love and I enjoy. I don't give much thought to God. I've never really given much thought to God. Maybe you're here this morning and, and that's you. And the Spirit's made you realize that this morning. What you need to do is you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from the world. You need to turn from those idols that are now yours. And you need to turn to the true and living God for salvation in His Son. But this, uh, this, this hope that we have because of our salvation, this hope of Christ's return, it, 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 it produces in us a desire to live a certain way. The new birth has made us children who want to obey God. That was not our desire beforehand. We'll see that in a few moments. So we see the relationship between our minds and our living. We see the relationship between the new birth and our living. And then we see the relationship between holiness and choices. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What does it mean to live in hope? It means that we will strive to live holy lives. That's what it means. Let me ask you, what do you think of when you think of a, living a holy life? What comes to your mind? When I say that you and I are commanded in God's Word as obedient children to live holy lives, what do you think of when you think of holiness? What, what, What do you conceive of when you think of that? The basic meaning of holiness, and I'm sure most of you know this, means to be set apart, dedicated to God. If you're saved, you belong to God now. You are His precious possession, purchased by the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus. You belong to Him, and so therefore you are to be living for Him in the midst of a lost and dying world. In the midst of darkness, you are to be God's light in the world. But what does it mean to live a holy life? That's the essence of it, but what does it really mean? I think these verses tell us. First of all, we need to first think negatively. And we read in verse 14 this, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Holiness is when I am not being conformed to old passions. Passions that were in my former ignorance. Passions that belong to my past. Do you realize that your former life, my former life, before we knew Jesus, was a life of being led by passions. Passions. You were led about by lust, drives, passions, desires that reflected your ignorance. Passions that fueled your ignorance. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. This passage says so much about who we were before salvation. All of us. And as I read this passage and I see our condition as lost people in the world before coming into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, before Jesus found us, As I read these verses, I see why there's a need for sovereign election. I see why it is that we're completely dependent upon God for our salvation. To save us. Listen to these words. For you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But I really like the next verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were... You know, not being conformed by my former passions, if I'm just doing that, trying to, you know, live pure and have pure thoughts and all of those things, is I'm just keeping a list of do's and don'ts that I think align with God's will and spirit for my life, but I'm not pursuing anything. That's not holiness. God raised you and I from spiritual death. He called you, he called me, he made you a new creation. So he is the standard for your life now. He's the standard. God himself is the standard. We see that made clear to us in the book of Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is so so beautiful. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. Here's that description again. When you were living in them, immersed in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talking from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Did you hear that? You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Who? Whose image is the new self made in. God's. God's. And you are being renewed by truth. You are growing in knowledge and you are being conformed not to your old passions, you're being conformed to the image of Christ. If the old passions are what I'm not to be conformed to, then... What am I to be conformed to? My Creator. My Creator. Romans chapter 12. I love the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. A great treatise. The greatest theological treatise ever written. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. Romans 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do
1: Look, the Christian
0: life is not just about knowledge. It is not just about knowledge. I love gaining knowledge. I love reading theology. I love being in my Bible. I have a library as a, uh, you know, that rivals the library of someone who's been in ministry for years and years and years. I love that. But, but the Christian life isn't just about knowledge. It's not just about ideas. It's not just about discussions. It's not just about debate. We must conduct ourselves a certain way. We must conduct ourselves properly.
1: You shall
2: be
0: holy, for I am holy. That's what it means, church. To live a life of hope. It means that you look for the coming of your Savior. You fix your faith there. And you live your life in light of that day. And that means not just in how you think. But now, how you live as well. Not being conformed to the passions you knew
1: in your ignorance. But being conformed to the one who is because there's not a pursuit of that.
0: No unwholesome thing proceed forth from our mouths. We just read that, actually. Something similar to that. But people these days, even in the church, talk however they want to talk, there's to be no coarse jesting, there's 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 you know profane things being said, dirty jokes being told, all these things. Christians, people who fill our churches today, leave them and go out and live like the rest of the world and have no concern about a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of Christ likeness. No, as long as I've 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 listened to a sermon, as long as I've heard some some biblical teaching, then I'm oh, I'm all right. No, it's not just about the mind. It's going to be about the body. It's going to be about the life. It's going to be about the conduct, the speech. And I would have you question whether or not you even know God in Christ Jesus if there is no concern about how you live. If there's no concern about how you talk. If, if that doesn't mean anything to you. Because I'm telling you, it means something to God... That's the reason why the Apostle Paul's letters usually begin with this little theological section at the beginning, except for Romans, at the beginning, and then the, the, the rest of it's all about practical Christian living. Why is that necessary?
1: Is this your desire this morning?
0: Is this what you're striving to do as a believer? To pursue holiness. Uh, with, a, with a passion. It's a passionate pursuit in your life. Is that what you desire? Is that what you're trying? Is that what you're striving for this morning? Now we are not saved by, by our conduct. Not at all. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. Unmerited favor. The sovereign grace of God. But our conduct, what we do thereafter, will be different as a result of that new birth, because we are made obedient children, that'll be the pattern of our lives. Can it be said of you this morning that you are an obedient child of God? As others look at you, can it be said of you this morning, man? Because of the way they live, I can tell that God's made a difference in their life. Something, something, has made a difference in their life. And if they know you're a Christian, then your obvious answer to them would be, "It's God." And th- they would have to say, "Well." God must have done something in their life because they don't live like the rest of the people I see. Is that a concern of ours? The church needs to do what the church is called to do and that's be the church, not the world. Not the world. We are not to be bowing our knee to the world. Trying to appeal to the world. We are to submit ourselves to God's will, to God's spirit, for our lives as individuals, for our lives as a corporate body and only follow what we see in this book.
2: What we read in this book.
1: Do you know... Whatever
2: I didn't deliver as clearly as should be, Lord, I pray that You and Your grace
1: the complexity
0: of it sometimes and what we read and what we see. Lord, I pray that we would be people who would seek and desire to submit ourselves to it. Lord, we are told that without holiness no one will see You. If And you have commanded us to be holy as you are holy. Imperfectly, we strive for that here on this earth as your people. And Lord, I pray for those that we see around us who holiness doesn't seem to be anything that they desire, anything that they think about. They are apart from you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would break for them and that we would take to them the one thing that they are in desperate need of. And that's the good news concerning Jesus Christ. The fact that He came and died to redeem a people from sin, to set them free from their sin and from Satan, and to give them a life, and a life of abundance, all the more abundant. Lord, we thank You for what You do in in people's lives as we've seen You work. And Lord, I thank You for what You're going to do today as this message has gone forth. Use it by your power to change a life, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name,
1: amen.